All right, if you got your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, kind of um, in that area. That's where we're going to be today, several places in Ephesians 3, and then we'll fi- uh, finish up in Ephesians 4. And um, so if you go ahead and turn there, I'm in the CSB, if you're on the Version Bible app, um, it'll be on the screen and in your outline. Uh, so as you turn there, uh, just wondering who here is familiar with aerodynamic drag? Any, any ladies? I got a young one back there. That's awesome. Well, aerodynamic drag is basically when a car is moving, um, the, uh, it, it displaces the air. So that's why a lot of sports cars are designed, uh, you know, really sporty, um, very aerodynamically because it helps to displace the air around it. But that air still affects the vehicle's speed and its performance. And so technically, air causes drag or friction to the moving vehicle. Well, just like aerodynamic drag negatively affects a moving vehicle and its performance, um, its speed, its fuel mileage, all of that type stuff, um, there are some things in the Christian's life that negatively affect us as we seek to pursue after Jesus. At New Passion, we say we exist to lead people to become passionate followers of Jesus. We want you to passionately follow Jesus. Um, And there are some things that will um, put some friction on that, that will um, add some drag to that and make you less effective when it comes to following Jesus and living for him. Um, Namely, those things are conflict, division, unforgiveness, and uh, bitterness. Bitterness is really a result of unforgiveness. And so those things negatively impact our effectiveness for Jesus. And I want you to write this down because this is kind of the overarching truth that we're going to look at today. And it's this, a healthy Christian is a fully healed follower of Jesus. A healthy Christian is a fully healed follower of Jesus. I want you to be freed from these things that would... um, be a drag on your pursuit of Jesus. These things that would negatively affect your pursuit of him and your ability to live in complete obedience to him. So to get there, um, we got to kind of look at how Paul sets this up and really the reasoning by, behind why we will see what he says um, we are to do and some responsibilities that he gives us because he gives us some specific responsibilities and he shares about um, this grace that God has given him to serve the church in Ephesians chapter 3. And so it can be best summed up in verses 7 to 10 without having to go through the whole chapter. And so this is what it says in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. It says, I was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So this is important because if you understand Paul and his life before Christ, you will understand first and foremost why he says that he um, is the least of all the saints, but then why he is talking about this gift of grace that has been given to him. Because just like all of us, he was undeserving, but some of us might 
see ourselves in a, a certain light to where we would look at his life and go, wow, he was much worse than me. Or wow, if God can give grace to him and change his life, then maybe he can do the same for me. And so this is why he is saying that this grace has been given to him um, is a gift because it's undeserved and it's unearned um, by him. But he says the gift of grace was given to him to serve the church because there are some things that he wants to uh, and is now responsible for doing with the church. And so he writes this to the church at Ephesus, and he's essentially saying that his purpose is to proclaim the incalculable um, riches of Christ to Christians. And in so doing, he calls us to some specific responsibilities as a result of these riches that Jesus has bestowed to us. So what we'll see in chapter 4 in just a moment when we get there is the fact that what he is calling us to, those responsibilities, those behaviors, those attitudes, the characteristics, are a direct result of the fact that God has bestowed these incalculable riches to us. We too have been given a gift of grace and it makes us responsible for certain things. So in chapter three, verses 14 through 21, he continues and he says this, for this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he says here in verse 14, for this reason. So he's told us about this grace that's been given to him and this gift of grace and that he wants the church to to comprehend and to understand these things. So he's saying, for this reason, for the reason of this incalculable um, uh, riches that have been poured out on us, it's because of the grace given to him, the least of all saints, these incalculable riches of Christ, that he says, I kneel before the Father, that, that he kneels, he's praying on behalf of um, these Christians, but not just these Christians, but every Christian that would um, be able to have access to this truth because these truths are, tr are transferable. They, they transcend time because what he says even in this passage is that he wants us to have an understanding that all saints should have. So, so it's not just for those Christians in um, this day and then this time, but it's for our day and our time as well, because these characteristics are reflective of Christ. And so in his prayer, he prays that the indwelling Holy Spirit will strengthen them internally. He wants, he's praying that the Spirit will strengthen them and will give them the strength that they need for what he's calling them to, for this life that Christ has saved them for. He prayed that Christians would comprehend, um, the scripture said, comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. So, so he wants us to comprehend just how vast and deep God's love is 
for each of us. And to know Christ's love, that, that's an intimate knowledge, an intimate knowledge of his love. He says that surpasses knowledge. So, so it's not just a logical knowledge, but it's this understanding of Christ's love in a depth that um, only those who have experienced it can really understand and can comprehend. And so then he says, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He, he wants you to have all of God that you can have. He wants these Christians to have all of God that they can have, to be filled with the Spirit, to understand and to know His love so that they can live according to that love. And so Paul wanted Christians to comprehend the vastness of God's love because, he said, we've been rooted and firmly established in it. And so everything we have from God and everything we experience from God is rooted and firmly established in His love. So, so that's like building your house and establishing something, rooting it maybe in concrete. Like, um, unless some tragic thing were to come along, like, you're not moving that. Um, you, it, it's firm. It's established. Well, well, this is stronger than concrete. This is stronger than even that illustration because this is his love. It says th this is firmly established. It is rooted. So, so it is the source for all things that come from God. It is the source of that deep and that vast and that wide and, and the, the height of his love. And so when God saves us, he firmly establishes us in Jesus. That's why the Bible says, he that knew no sin became sin so that um, we could become the righteousness of, of God. And so we're hidden in Christ. What Christ did on the cross was for our benefit. And so no longer does God see you when you're a Christian and you have trusted in him for salvation. He no longer sees you as your sinful self. He no longer sees you as that sinner, as that, um, that, that evil enemy of his, as Colossians says, but now he sees you as holy, blameless, without a single fault. It's like he puts on grace glasses and he sees you through the righteousness of Christ because you are in him, you are rooted in him, you're established in him. And so that salvation is not based on yourself, as Paul is saying here. It is a gift of God. It is given to you freely, not because of anything you earned or anything you did. And so it, it cannot be established in your your works. It can't be established in your goodness. It can't be established in anything about yourself. It is rooted in Christ. It is established in him. And so when you're saved, you're held securely by God's love, and it is all rooted in his love. That is the source of our salvation, but it is also the source of that which sustains us. That means that when you get it wrong, when you fail, when you fall short, when you're trying to pursue Jesus and you get it wrong and you sin, that means that, that those things do not disrupt God's love for you or your salvation because it's not rooted in you. It is rooted in him. So it sustains you and it holds you firmly in Christ Jesus. And so God's grace to us, um, that which he gives us what we don't deserve, uh, mercy is he doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is he gives us what we don't deserve. And so um, in his mercy, he doesn't give you um, hell and eternal damnation if you're in Christ. But grace is I'm going to also give you eternal life. I'm going to give you heaven. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you all these things that you don't deserve. That's grace. It's rooted and firmly established in his love. 
his forgiveness towards us, the, 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 the result of that grace is rooted and firmly established in his love. His abundant life that he tells us that we can have in Christ Jesus, not just life, but life to the full, abundant life is rooted in his love. It's firmly established in his love. It is the source by which we have life. It is the source by which we have grace. And so all of these um, incalculable riches that have been bestowed to us by Christ Jesus is rooted and firmly established in his love. And it is because of that that he wants us to understand the vastness and the depth of his love. Why? Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 tells us, therefore, now I've told you all this, I've told you that you're rooted and firmly established um, in love, um, that that I want you to understand and I want you to comprehend um, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth Like, I want you to understand the vastness of the depth of God's love. Why? Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. He wants us to walk in a worthy way. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You can write this down. Healthy Christians do everything in their power to live at peace with one another. Healthy Christians do everything in their power to live at peace with one another. Paul begins chapter four, um, and we added chapters down the way. This is one complete letter. And so he's beginning this part of his letter, pointing back to the things we just talked about in chapter three. That's why he says, therefore, because of God's vast love for us, firmly establishing us for eternity, We now have a great responsibility. This responsibility reflects the nature and the character of Jesus, but it also benefits us personally. The scenario that Paul gives the church at Ephesus here is actually the prejudiced divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. He spoke of this in chapter 3. This is where it's important to understand what he's talking about beforehand, because when he calls them to something, you understand just how important it is, um, or, or really um, the vastness of what he's calling them to, how vital it is, or how maybe um, difficult it might be. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, the Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, this is huge because it's a huge shift in responsibility for the Jewish Christians. That's why when you look at uh, chapter 4 and and you see what he's calling them to, there's a, a reason that he's reminding them just before this about this relationship with the Gentiles. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. They, they had spite and prejudice towards one another. And so the Jews were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were considered some of the worst of sinners and even described as dogs. This was a nationality difference. This was, um, this was uh, the fact that God had chosen them. It was even uh, racial in some ways. Um, it, it was the same with the Samaritans because the Samaritans were like half-breeds between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so there was this prejudice, there was this hatred, there was this spite among these groups of people. But then um, God's uh, chosen people, the Jews, 
um, you know, they, they could have had this pride and this um, kind of arrogance about them because, well, God chose us. He didn't choose you. You're, you're, I mean, they were even described as dogs. Y- y- y'all are the dogs. We're God's chosen people. And so there's this spite, there's this division taking place among these groups of people. But now Paul tells them that the Gentiles have also been made co-heirs with Jesus. They're members of the same family. So, so Jesus has come on the scene. Jesus has given this vast love, these incalculable riches, this grace and this forgiveness, this mercy. He, he's, he's poured all of this out, not just on the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And Paul now is reminding them of this and saying that, hey, the Gentiles are co-heirs with Jesus. They're now in the same family. There is no longer Jew and Gentile. Now it's one group of people. There are no more in God's kingdom, Americans and, uh, give me another country, Russians and Ukrainians, because those are in the news. There are no longer this nationality and this nationality in the kingdom of God. Now it's one group of people. It's one people group. And we all belong to the same family. We're not just a nation, though we are considered a nation. We're considered a family. We're adopted by God in Christ Jesus. He has made us co-heirs with Christ together. And so that's what's happening here. This is the illustration that he's given them. And so you're, you're, you're looking in now as a modern Christian, looking back at what's taking place, and we see something that's not only plagued our own country and our own people in history— And so we can identify this and we can understand this somewhat, some maybe more than others. But so we we look at this and we go, man, when we talk about like prejudice and we talk about hatred and we talk about racism and we talk about all these things that divide us and we can even look in modern day and go, um, like, where's the resolution for this? Where's the solution to this? We see that it's a big problem. We see that it's a huge division among people, and yet we can look in Scripture and go, this was the same problem that they had. This is what they were dealing with, and yet, despite this, Paul is speaking to them, and he's calling them to a certain responsibility and behavior. Why? Because they've been firmly rooted and established in God's love. Because he has poured out on them these incalculable riches through the gospel. His love, his forgiveness, his grace, his life. And so now he's telling them, look, it's one family now. We all belong to the same group of people. The Gentiles are now partners in the promises of God through the gospel. That is true for us in the modern day. It doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your history. What matters is if you're in Christ Jesus, we are one people group. There is no hierarchy, there is no superiority, there is only to be love. There's only to be um, uh, unity and peace among one another. Why? Because um, we, we've all received the gift of grace. We, we've all received what we did not deserve. And so we all belong to God's family because of Christ Jesus. We're one nation. We're one people. We are one family. So he gives us this because we can understand this 
divide. We can understand this great division. And so this is a huge shift in responsibility to these Jewish Christians because they're no longer the hierarchy. They're no longer superior. They're no longer just the chosen ones. And so Paul doesn't tell them to eventually figure this out. He doesn't say, hey, y'all sit down, work this out, maybe in 10 years. You know, I mean, how long have we been trying to get peace in the Middle East? Forever? He doesn't say, sit down and let's have these forums and let's have these discussions and hopefully we can figure it out. No, he, he says, he, he urges them. He says that he urged them. And, and so he urges them to act based on the same gospel that tr- transformed them. Uh, to, urge is, um, to, to urge someone is to seek an immediate response, not a delayed reaction. If I'm urging you, I'm urging you not to go into the burning building. I'm urging you not to do that now. I'm, I'm urging you, um, I've told this story before, how I was walking into a church that my dad was filling in at. Um, I don't know how old I was, but it was in um, Renz, Georgia. And I was walking with my brother um, side by side. Now, um, this, this is also a lesson in obedience, um, because many of you know my dad. Um, in fact, um, someone who used to uh, attend here said that when my dad preached, like he made him want to sit up and like Pay attention, you know, because my dad is a, a big guy. He's um, got a very deep voice. He's very commanding. And so, um, dad, you didn't play. You know, dad just had to lift his eyebrow. You, you, you look down the, 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 the seats. If you're messing around, dad just raises the eyebrow. That's it. Like, you behave or else you're getting it at home. Um, and, and so, we're, we're, when dad, you know, dad just would say front and center. That, that's, that's how he called you, front and center. And you make eye contact with him because if you're not making eye contact, you're not paying attention. That's why when I go to conferences, when I go to other, when I'm sitting in other church services, I'm sitting very close. I'm where I can make eye contact because that's how I was trained. I, like that's how I have to pay attention. And so when dad spoke, you listened. And so we're walking into church and I'm walking side by side with my younger brother and, and he urged us to stop. He didn't say, I urge you to stop. It's just the way that he said to stop. And we froze in our tracks. We weren't even paying attention. We weren't even looking. We were just walking. And as we gazed down, there was a water moccasin or a cotton mouth um, sitting there poised to strike, deciding which one he wanted. And so my dad and another man said, had it not been the two of us, one of us probably would have gotten bitten because he was confused on which one he wanted to go after. I was offering my brother. I don't know why he didn't take it, but um, I guess we both look delicious. I don't know, but, but he was poised to strike. My dad urged. It wasn't like, hey, keep walking. Maybe you'll figure it out in another step or two. No, he, 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 urged us in such a way we froze and we stopped because we knew dad's voice and, and when he meant for us to stop. And so we obeyed and it saved us. It helped us. In the same way, Paul here is urging them. He's not wanting them to figure this out over time. He's appealing to them based on something that was immediate in their own life. The incalculable riches of Christ that was poured out on them. God's vast and deep love that was given to them, and in a moment, it transformed them. In a moment, it transformed their standing before them and God because of Christ Jesus. In the same way, he is telling them to um, give this same love, this same grace, these same riches towards 
the others. Because they received the love, grace, and forgiveness of God, he now wants them to extend those same things to one another so they can be unified and live at peace. This isn't just a request Paul is making or something that he's hoping that they will do. This is not just something he's hoping that we as followers of Jesus will do. This is not something that he was hoping that all the saints would figure out. In fact, he tells us that this behavior makes Christians worthy of their calling. See, it's interesting that you can't be worthy of your salvation on the front end. You you cannot be worthy enough to earn your salvation. You can't even be worthy enough to earn it on the back end. To go, you know what, God, I kind of figured it out, and and I kind of made up for um, what you had to pay. You you know, kind of that thing, like if you go to lunch with someone and you forget your wallet, it's very embarrassing because you're like, man, I forgot my wallet. Can you pay for me? I'll pay you back. Or now, you know, it's I'll, I'll cash app you or whatever. And you pay them back for what you owe them. This is a debt that we cannot pay back for all of our life. And yet he says he wants us to walk worthy of our calling. So we can walk worthy in the calling in the sense that we act out and we live out the behavior that has been given to us. It still doesn't earn our salvation, but he says it makes us worthy of our calling. It makes us worthy in the working out of our salvation. And so he's calling them to this love and this grace and this forgiveness. In this situation, it was towards the prejudice, it was towards the hatred that they had among the groups. Now they're in the same church. Now they're having to worship together. And so this is important because he wants there to be unity and peace within the family of God. And so he says, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. I'm not hoping you do this. I'm instructing you to do this. I'm expecting you to do this as followers of Jesus. And so how do Christians live unified and at peace with one another? Number one, by choosing humility, by choosing humility. The Jews could no longer pride themselves on being God's only chosen people because of their physical nationality. That they couldn't look down on Gentiles as being less than or being second-class citizens. They're now a part of the same family. They're now a part of the same nation, the same group of people. The, The Jews had to humble themselves in order to have unity and peace within the whole family of God. Because it now consisted of other groups of people. Gentiles, uh, uh, well, pride is one of, a, uh, of the primary disruptors to unity and peace among God's people. It's pride. P- pride works itself out in many different ways, but it is a primary disruptor to the peace and the unity that we are called to have as followers of Jesus. Pride elevates people's opinion of themselves. It makes them think of themselves more highly than you ought to. And Paul says, don't do that but yet it does. Pride disrupts unity and peace because it causes you to dominate everyone you see as being less than you or beneath you. So so when you feel like you're better than other people, you feel like you're superior, you feel like other people are less than you, maybe they're they're, uh, worse sinners than you or whatever that might be, then you feel that you can dominate them and you can never go any further in your relationship with them because they're less than you. They're beneath you. And so pride builds and puffs yourself up. Pride creates entitlement, and entitlement disrupts unity because it demands its own way. It creates self-centeredness. It creates selfishness. This is what I deserve. This is what I am owed. 
And so it disrupts unity and peace because now you're fighting for your rights and what you're owed rather than looking out for the interest of other people. Once again, an instruction by Paul. Don't just look out for your own, uh, you know, uh, self, your own um, benefit, but look out for the benefit of other people. Look out for their needs as well. Pride demands other people lay their life down for you rather than you choosing to lay your life down for them. Pride makes people unteachable. If you see yourself as great and everyone else as small or less than you, who can teach you anything? No one. And so you now no longer become, you're no longer teachable. You're no longer leadable. Um, this is one of the things that was, I'm thankful was kind of pounded in my head as a child and pounded in my head as a young person, as a teenager growing up, not just by my parents, but those who had spiritual influence over me, remain teachable, always remain teachable, remain teachable, always be teachable. Why? Because if you get to the point where you're not teachable, you're of no good to anyone. You're only good to yourself because you think you're greater than what you are, but you can never be taken any further than the point that you're at at that moment because no one can teach you and no one can lead you. No one can point out your errors and you'll never see the areas of your life that need improvement or that need correction. Pride convinces people they're always right. But even if you are indisputably wrong, you will have justification for it. You'll, you'll move the goalpost so that you'll always be right. That's what pride does. Pride is dishonest. It's not honest. It's not truthful. But humility, where he calls us to humility, humility lowers self. It knows that my way isn't always the right way. It understands that my perspective is a limited perspective and others might see things differently. Now, I'm not talking about truth. I'm talking about in relational situations. And so they might see things uh, differently, but those differences of opinion don't have to cause division among us. It doesn't have to, we can disagree, but it doesn't mean we have to be divided in our relationship and in how we interact with one another. And so um, humility recognizes error in oneself and seeks to correct it. Why? Because pride puffs yourself up. And if you're so great, you don't even have need of the Holy Spirit. But what humility does is it lowers yourself, it lowers your perspective of self, and it helps you to be more in tune with the Holy Spirit so that He can convict you and He can speak to you so that when you're wrong and when you're in error, you can recognize that and you can make corrections. You can repent. You can uh, seek forgiveness, whatever you need to do. And so humility helps you to recognize the wrong in your own life, but it also helps you to be receptive, to receive feedback from other people to say, hey, I think you overstepped the line here. I think you were a little harsh here. I think you could have handled this a little bit differently or whatever that might be. And it allows you to receive that so that you can make those corrections. We see that with David. When, when he was confronted with his sin, he didn't deny it. What he did was he repented in that moment because he recognized that he had sinned and that he had done a great evil against God. And so humility doesn't demand its own way because it knows you won't always get it. That's humility. Pride is, I'm always going to get my way. Because why? I'm going to be demanding. I'm going to be domineering. I'm going to make sure I get my way. That's pride. 
Humility understands in life you're not always going to get your way. It's not always going to turn out the way that you want it to turn out. Number two, we can have unity and peace by being gentle. By being gentle. Walking worthy of our calling is to be gentle. It's responding instead of reacting. It's taking time to pause, to think, to, to, get your, um, to, to, to get your anger under control, to get your worry under control, whatever, your fears under control, to, to process things rather than to just blow up and to react. We, we learned this in our community group not too long ago. Um, it, it's meekness. Gentleness is meekness. And yet oftentimes we misunderstand what meekness is and we think it's getting run all over. We think it's being a, uh, being a, a pushover. But meekness, uh, the meaning of that word meekness actually means strength under control. It means you are strong. It means that you are wise. It, does, it means that you do know what you're talking about, but you have control. You have control of your emotions. You have control of how you respond. Gentleness is not harsh. It's not negative, and it's not demeaning. It's believing the best. Gentleness believes the best in other people. It's making every effort to keep unity in the Spirit. And that requires that we put away harshness and anger even when we feel we've been wronged. And there are times you know you've been wronged. And yet we choose to seek unity and peace by um, putting away the harshness and putting away the anger, finding another solution, and that is through gentleness and keeping the peace You can have a sharp disagreement and be on the complete opposite side of an issue in your beliefs, in how you view things, and you can still be gentle in how you handle the problem, how you respond to the problem, and how you express your views. How do we as Christians keep the peace and have unity among the the family of God? We be gentle. We put on gentleness. The third one is this, by having patience, by having patience. We are to be patient with one another because God is patient with us. He is long suffering. He suffers long because of our sin, because of how wicked we can be. He has suffered long. He has given us grace in that. But by understanding the vast depth of God's patience towards us, we can in turn extend that same patience to other people. It is one of the best exercises you can ever practice in your life. When you've been wronged, when there's a disagreement, when there's some kind of tension and turmoil, there's some kind of drag on your relationship, to to pause, to be gentle, to take time to respond rather than react, and in that response to think just how patient God's been with you. To, 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 To think just how merciful and just how much grace He has extended to you. And in that, now you apply that to that other person and you realize the patience that you're needing to extend to them is far less, far less than what God has had to do with you. But the problem is in the church, among Christians, unforgiveness has become one of the most accepted sins that we tolerate and that we negotiate with. We all have a reason why I can't forgive that person. We all have a reason why um, I can't uh, let go of this problem or this hurt or this wound that they've caused. It is the number one sin that we negotiate with. It's the number one sin that we justify in our own life and even in other people's lives. 
That's why when something happens to someone, you will hear things like, oh, you deserve better, or you deserve this, or and what, what are we saying? Like, hey, you deserve to, to hold on to that bitterness, to hold on to that pain. You, you don't deserve to have to forgive them. You don't deserve to have to let that problem or that pain go. We negotiate with it. We, we, we justify it in our own lives. We justify our unforgiveness. We negotiate the reasons why we don't have to or shouldn't have to forgive our offender. And so we carry that bitterness with us year, for years, and it piles up. And here's from my own experience, what I will tell you is if you, if you don't get rid of that bitterness, it's like putting water in a cup. The next person that offends you, the next person that wrongs you, it could be over the smallest thing. You put a little more water in that cup and you put a little more water and over time it overflows. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what Jesus tells us. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's out of the overflow of the heart that we behave and that we act where our attitudes come from. And so now your fuse becomes shorter and shorter, less and less, because why? You held on to bitterness for years about, from one person, then another person, and then another person. And all of a sudden, one day, it blows up and it explodes on other people. And so that bitterness affects every other relationship. It makes us even less patient with people who we disagree with, who don't give us our way, or who may in their own humanity wound us or hurt us just as someone else did. Unforgiveness and bitterness negatively affect our effectiveness for Jesus. A hundred percent, every time. It is that drag. It is that, that friction that holds you back that slows you down in your pursuit of Christ. A healthy Christian is a forgiving Christian. A healthy Christian is a fully healed Christian. You've not fully forgiven that person, that offender. You've not fully been healed. When you hear the name of that person, and immediately it's those negative emotions, those negative thoughts. Immediately you have something negative to say. It disrupts your attitude, your emotions. You, you um, take joy in negative things happening to them. The scripture says, if that's our heart, then that's our reward. If you take joy in your enemy, in harm coming to them, that's your reward. And so when you still, oh, I forgave them. It took me over a year, over a year to, for, my, for my father-in-law, and y'all hear that story, I'm sure, again, one day. I've told it several times. But see, the, 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 the one thing that I thought that I had to fix was just as I looked at it and as God gave me perspective, it was years. And as I've told you, um, it was 24 years of my life because it started back here with one situation, and then this situation happened, and I didn't I didn't forgive. And then this situation happened and I didn't forgive. And then this situation happened and I didn't forgive. And bitterness and unforgiveness for 24 years. Oh, I forgave them. I came down and I kneeled at the church altar and I let it go and I forgave. But then I would hear their name and it would make me angry. It would well up within me bitterness. I had not truly forgiven them. 
because I didn't truly understand and I wasn't putting it into perspective of the riches, the incalculable riches that I had received in Christ. And it was actually by someone presenting the gospel in talking about relationships and forgiveness that the light bulb clicked on and I realized I had not forgiven them because the motives were wrong. The motives were incorrect. But when I understood what Christ had done for me and the true meaning of forgiveness and the true meaning of love, the true meaning of grace, then I could begin to forgive those people. And it transformed my life. No longer did I take joy or delight in something negative happening to them. No longer did you mention their name or someone mention their name and I get angry and I have negative thoughts about them or I have something negative to say about them. No longer, no more, not a single one of them. Praise be to God because of his incalculable riches. If that's you, you're not healed. And that's why it's vitally important to under, for, for us to understand why Paul began with what he began with in chapter 3, that we understand the vast depth of God's love because it is only when we understand that that we can truly then extend that same attitude and behavior to other people. A healthy Christian seeks to be unified and at peace with the whole family. And the last fill in the blank is this, by enduring difficulties through love. How can we be unified how can we live at peace? By enduring difficulties through love. First Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, Jews, I want you to love those Gentiles. Whatever harsh things y'all have said about one another, have done to one another, I want you to cover that in love. Above all else, Above all else, I want you to respond to them in the vast love, the depths of God's grace that you have been rooted in and that you have been established in because it's been given to you. Now, I want you to give it to them. I don't care what they've done. I don't care what they've said. I want you to be at peace and to be unified, to keep the unity of the Spirit. Without humility, gentleness, and patience, we cannot have genuine love. The problem in today's church is though there's very little bearing with one another in love. People run away from problems, they avoid conflict, and they take up offenses that have nothing to do with them. If there's one thing that marks our modern day, it is tribalism. You upset my friend, you said something to them, they don't like you, so I don't like you, and we take up offenses, and now we're angry with people that have never done anything to us, we're out with people that have never harmed us. As a pastor, I, I've, I've got a rule. Unless someone has done something personally to me, you may not like that other per pastor, but until um, they are unworthy of my friendship, then I'm going to be their friend. And even if they do something, we're still going to try to reconcile. There, there are times you can forgive and reconcile, but it might not be healthy to maintain a close relationship. But just because you don't like them doesn't mean I'm not going to like them because I'm your friend. I can be both of your friends. And that's what we need to realize in the church. Just because someone has, uh, is upset doesn't mean you have to be upset with them as well. As well, we're never called to run from our problems, and we're never called to run from conflict. We're, we're called to address it and to deal with it. And so this is why, once again, it's important for how Paul began in chapter 3. Because when we understand the length and width, height and depth of God's love, 
then we'll understand that it is our responsibility if we are going to walk worthy of our calling to act similarly, similarly toward one another. That's how we'll be fully healed and a healthy Christian. And that's when we'll be at our peak performance and effectiveness as we follow Jesus. And so today, I don't know what relational tension you might be dealing with. I don't know who you might be out with. I don't know who might be out with you, um, who might be seeking forgiveness, who might be seeking restoration, and you've been keeping them at a arm's length. Look, there are some people that you need to forgive and move on. There are times that trust has to be re-earned. I understand that. I'm not saying to put yourself in a toxic situation, but what I am telling you is you need to get to a point where even if you don't have a relationship with that person anymore, you can forgive them, you can be gracious towards them, so that when their names are brought up, when that situation comes to mind, there isn't that turmoil, that it, there isn't that wounding, that brokenness, there isn't the negativity. Why? Because that's what we're called to. We're called to live unified and at peace with the whole family of God. I don't want you seeing someone out in public and having to fake it, having to pretend. You can be at complete peace and unity with them, even if you have a sharp disagreement. You can love them, and you can be patient with them, even in disagreement. May God get us to that point. And so I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know what relationship might be broken. I don't know what situation you're dealing with. But here's my prayer and here's my hope. Because maybe that's not the situation for you today. Maybe today's a preparation for the next time a relationship goes wrong. That we will remember the incalculable riches that we have received in Christ Jesus. That we are rooted and firmly established in His love. And because of that, because of what He has done for us, we have now a responsibility to respond in like way towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the gospel. I thank you that it is because of the incalculable riches, the gift of grace, the gift of love that we have received in Jesus, that I have received in Jesus, that I even get to belong to the family of God. God, may we never overlook that. May we never forget that. May we never be puffed up in pride thinking we're greater than what we are. We are but sinners saved by grace. We were your enemies. You could have destroyed us. You could have killed us off. You could have let us go head first into our eternal damnation, separated from you, and yet you chose to love us. You chose to redeem us. Who are we to demand any greater from anyone else in our life? Lord, help us to be fully healed Christians. Help us to be healthy Christians as we pursue after you, as we follow Jesus. May we not just follow him and not look like him, but may we follow him and mimic him and look like him and act like him and love like him in every aspect of our life. Lord, if there's someone here struggling with forgiveness, God, through your spirit, help them to understand the gospel in such a way they can't resist forgiveness. God, if there's someone bogged down with the cancerous bitterness that is destroying their life, I pray that you would bring them to a place that they can escape that bitterness for their own health. 
for their own soul. And if there's someone here that is dealing with some kind of turmoil that they're holding on to, that they won't let go of, and it's causing um, disruption in the unity and the peace within the family of God, God, I pray that you convict them today to let go of it, to hand it over to you, to let you deal with it, to trust you with it. God, whatever it is that we're dealing with, whatever it is that you need to speak to us, may we be receptive in this moment to your spirit. And may we respond in obedience and in trust. I love you. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.